Uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and what we're looking at today is kind of the fast version of uh, introducing Jesus to people. So we're going to look at a whole lot of things really quickly, rather than in depth, because in the Gospel of Mark, it goes bang, 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 bang. And you get all these snapshots of what Jesus is like, and you find out or you're getting clues as to who he is. So let's pray and then look at, you might want to hold on to your seats afterwards as we go through this section of Mark's Gospel. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look now at this passage, that you would help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him as he is. That we may understand Jesus. And in doing so, Respond in a way that brings peace to us and honour to him. Amen. Well, some of them smoked cigarettes. Others played cards. Still others sat and talked. They were waiting for the plane to arrive. Someone saw it in the distance, out over the ocean. And he yelled to the others and immediately everyone left whatever it was they were doing and they went and watched the plane approach. As it came closer, they were able to make out its features. Yep, it was a big plane. That could be it. It seemed to be painted the usual dirty green of the RAAF transport planes. The big propellers churned away, bringing it slowly closer. And soon they could recognise the type of plane that it was. It was a Hercules, a transport. Then they could see its markings. Slowly but surely the plane closer and then all of a sudden it was down and was taxiing towards the watchers. The watchers were baggage handlers, but their anticipation had nothing to do with cargo. Their excitement was because of who was in the plane. The plane was bringing VIPs. And they were, indeed, very important people. But not in the usual sense. They were not wealthy or powerful or beautiful. They came as saviours. Who were they? They were Australian Army doctors and nurses coming to a land devastated by the Boxing Day tsunami. And they had come to save from disease and injury and death. When the Lord Jesus comes in the Gospel of Mark, he also comes as a saviour. Like our Aussie soldiers, he's not wealthy or beautiful, or even powerful in the conventional sense of the term. There's no great army behind him. Like our soldiers, he is eagerly anticipated. His arrival has been announced long before, and we've seen that as we've looked at previous parts of Mark. And like our soldiers, he comes as a saviour. The doctors and nurses saved people from Dysentery and cholera and gangrene. 
But what does Jesus say from? And how? When Jesus arrives in Mark, we see the coming of a saviour. But what kind of saviour is he? Let's go to our passage and find out. The passage starts in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus saves from Satan and his forces. In verses 12 to 13, earlier in chapter 1, we saw Jesus passively resist the temptation of, of Satan and win where Israel failed. Now, in these verses, he goes on the offensive. If you look at the question in verse 24, have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. Uh, Jesus' task is to destroy Satan and all his works. And in the passage we've just read, Jesus frees the man of demon possession. But this is only the start of his work. As you read on in Mark's Gospel, you see people, many more people, who are possessed by demons that Jesus frees. But of course, Jesus ultimately saves from Satan, the accuser, by taking our sin. So that when Satan accuses, God looks at us and says, I see no problem here. These people are innocent because they're covered by Jesus' goodness. The Lord Jesus came to save from Satan. In verses 29 and 31, we see a different kind of saving. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Like the Australian soldiers, uh, doctors and nurses, Jesus comes to save from sickness as well. And this demonstrates, this story here demonstrates his power to save from sickness. And at first glance, we might look at this and go, well, she has a fever. That's not that impressive. But in the days before aspirin and paracetamol, or if you're older, a bex, a fever killed regularly. And if you were so uh, down with fever that you had to be in bed, that you were bedridden, then you were at death's door. 
you are in all likelihood not going to make it through the day. You are probably going to die. And so Jesus demonstrates his ability to save from sickness by healing the mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, and it's so dramatic, she immediately gets up and starts serving people. It's like she bounces out of the bed. Uh, A few years ago, there were ads for Barocca that talked about you bouncing back. And it's like she's taken... Well, not even Barocca can do that. Uh, So what you see here is a cure that's instantaneous, that is so powerful that she immediately switches from dying to serving. Jesus has authority over sickness and he has the ability to heal. And let me say that Jesus is the one who can make us bounce back from sickness. And he might choose to do so in the here and now miraculously like this. Or he might choose to use doctors and nurses in what would appear to be the normal schema of things. Or he might choose to give us a resurrection body, which is perfect and never gets sick again. In one of those three ways, Jesus still deals with sickness. And the only variable is actually timing. And then we come to a strange little interlude or an apparently strange interlude, in verse 35. Have a look at verse 35. If I can turn one page instead of two. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Now, at first glance, this does seem like a strange interlude. But here, Jesus the Saviour states his mission. He has come to preach. And again, that might strike us as a bit strange. Well, Why is preaching like the thing you do, Jesus, when you've got all this power? Jesus is going to save people by preaching? Uh, Can you imagine, just for a moment, that that RAAF Hercules lands at the airport and out comes an emergency response team of ministers preaching? It's not what we would think, is it? would be the thing that you would immediately send. But Jesus has come, we hear, in this verse, to save people by preaching. And that is because his message is what saves people. The gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ, saves from Satan and sickness and ultimately from death. And that makes it even better than a plane load of Aussie soldiers. Jesus is the saviour 
And his chosen method of saving is the proclamation of his method, his message. As people share the good news of Jesus, then other people hear it. And then they believe, and that belief in Jesus saves them. So Jesus saves whenever his message is preached. Now, friends, it is a great temptation for us as Christians to think that Jesus saves through something else other than the preaching of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And often they are really good and worthy things. They're not bad things. They're good things. We might be tempted to think that Jesus saves by social action or the political process. Or it might be caring for the needy. Or support of our community through crisis. And let me say again, all of these things are good things to do and we should do them. But they are secondary things. Why? Because Jesus the Saviour has chosen to save people through the preaching of his message and then people believing that message. That is the way that he saves people. And so if the gospel isn't preached, then people won't be saved. Because they won't believe in someone they've never heard of. Okay, Romans chapter 10. And that is why, friends, as a church, and even as individual Christians, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus... That sharing of that great and life-saving message ought to be the first priority in our lives and in our church. And when we read on, we see that gospel message of Jesus enacted in the next few verses. Actually acted out for us. Have a look at verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees... If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out to his hand. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. This is the good news of Jesus acted out for us. In verse 40, the leper asks to be made clean. And that sounds like a weird thing to us, because if it was us, we'd be going to him and saying, Lord, please heal me of this terrible disease. That would be the more modern Western way of thinking. But his disease is not merely a health problem. It's actually a religious problem as well. For the law says that he is cut off from God's people and the temple because of his disease. He is declared to be unclean and cast out. Jesus, in that beautiful touching moment, reaches out and touches the leper. Now, of course, we know, because we've 
read a bit before and a bit afterwards and other bits that we know, that Jesus could have just said, be healed and it would have happened, wouldn't it? So it seems odd again that he would reach out and touch the man. Now, we could say that touching is a universal sign of affection and friendship and identification, which is why we shake hands with people. But that isn't what's going on here. That's not why it's so remarkable. For if we know the law of Moses, we know that touching the leper means that Jesus becomes unclean. As soon as he touches him, he becomes unclean. And I wonder if you can see the, the message of Jesus enacted right here and right now. Let me put it this way. Jesus becomes unclean so that the leper can become clean. If you like, he swaps places with the leper. And so Jesus is now the unclean one. He is defiled, cut off from God's people in the temple. He takes the leper's place. And the leper, well, he gets Jesus' place with the people. And that is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He became unclean and died so that we could be clean and live. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became unclean and died on the cross so that we could be clean and live forever with God in heaven. Jesus has shown with his actions that he is the saviour who cleanses us from our sin at his own cost. Now, we might be scratching our heads at this moment and asking ourselves, how can Jesus cleanse us from sin? I mean, sin is an offence against God. And surely only God can forgive sins. And if you are sitting there asking that question, whether you're sitting at home and listening online or whether you're sitting here listening, uh, then let me say you're not the only people who have asked that question. It's actually a really, really good question, and it was asked in chapter 2, verse 6, in our passage. There it is. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The story of Jesus healing the paralytic is one of the most popular stories in the Bible. And for a good reason. It's so vivid. You can just almost see the guys digging their way through the roof. And the person who owns the house looking up going, why are they doing that? Ah, my roof. And then he's told to get up and go. And it's also dramatic. And so it's popular for a reason. 
But the question in the scribe's mind here is actually accurate. They're correct. They knew their stuff. Only God can forgive sins. And so if Jesus doesn't have the authority to forgive sins, then it is blasphemy. Because he's taking on something that is for God alone. No mere miracle worker or prophet is able to forgive sins. So it's actually a really good question. But Jesus is no mere miracle worker or prophet. And by healing the paralytic, he proves that he has the authority to forgive sins. That he is able to do that. I'm reminded of one of those scenes in the movies where there's a bunch of cops gathered around a crime scene. And a newcomer in a suit walks up and says, all right, everyone, I'm in charge here now. And the, the cops turn around and argue with the person and then the guy, person gets out a badge and shows them their badge and goes, special agent, FBI, I have authority here now. In a similar way, by doing this amazing miracle, Jesus proves that he has the authority. That when it comes to sin, he's in charge here now. And so Jesus is able to cleanse us from our sins. He's able to forgive. He has the authority to save. You know, friends, when the Aussie soldiers, the doctors and nurses got off the plane, they were welcomed as saviours by all those there. And some of them were whisked away in helicopters to remote places to help people. And others were taken to field hospital where they went to work helping people. But they all received a warm welcome and they were all thanked. But, you know, it's a funny thing. That the Saviour, the Saviour, Jesus, often doesn't get the welcome he should. He is able to save us from every trouble or hardship and even from our own sin. And yet there are many who don't want him as their Saviour. Sometimes that's because they choose another Saviour. Others because they don't think they need saving in the first place. And still others know they need Jesus, but the busyness of life means they just forget about him. Sadly, the Lord Jesus is often asked to get back on the plane and go back to where he came from. Effectively. Friends, may that not be us. May each of us choose to welcome Jesus, to trust Jesus, and then to live under his rule. For that is the path of salvation. But friends, even amongst those who have done that and who love and accept 
Jesus as their saviour, well, we all too often forget how great is the salvation that he has brought to us and bought us with his life. We often complain about the light burdens that we bear and forget the large one that was on our backs and was crushing us, that load of sin and shame and guilt that Jesus has dealt with. So if this passage does one thing for us today, it ought to remind us how great is our self, how great is our salvation and our saviour. And how much he deserves our thanks and praise. And how much we should actually be joyful rather than weighed down by all the pressures of life. When we take our eyes off those pressures and instead look at him and what he's done for us. Let's pray and do that now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that in your great mercy and love for us, you sent Jesus to die for us. Thank you that he is the Saviour and he has authority to deal with sickness and Satan and our own sin. Thank you that he chose to be unclean by dying on the cross for us so that we could be clean, forgiven and able to enter heaven. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not just trust Jesus and live, but live in great joy and thankfulness at all that he has done for us. And we ask this, in Jesus' name, amen.